two. And uh, if you're just joining us, we've been uh, kind of going our way through the book of Ephesians, trying to get an understanding of uh, who we are in Christ, what God's word has to say about um, who we are, and uh, just these uh, blessings that we have uh, being in Christ, and just understanding that by knowing our identity in Christ, it should change on how we live our Christian life. Um, I believe the Christian life is more than just, I'm saved, I'm going to heaven. Um, there is so much more to the Christian life than just that. And this week here, we're going to kind of wrap up Ephesians chapter number two. And so far, we've seen in this description, as it's been playing out uh, through the book of Ephesians, that um, we see that we were dead. Uh, Paul says that uh, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Um, we once walked this way. We once lived this way according to the world, according to the passions of our flesh. And then he says, but God, but God who's rich in mercy, um, he, the love that which he loved us, he saved us, he, uh, he raised us up, he made us alive, the, the gospel became at work in our life when we turned from our sin and we turned to Christ. And then Paul goes a little bit further through Ephesians 2, and it's not only the fact that we now live a resurrected life in Christ, but now it's more than just our relationship with the Lord. Paul takes it and he moves it out and he says, now I want you to see how the resurrected life that you have in Christ affects the other relationships that you have. And uh, we see that uh, Paul uses this example of Jew and Gentile, how they were hostile against each other. And um, we see that the gospel of peace was preached through Christ as he was on the cross and he reconciled both parties together. And we came to live together, to dwell together, to be a part of something together, one thing together as uh, what Paul says. And as we looked at a couple of weeks ago, there's a climax that, that Paul builds to, and that climax is that we now have access to the Father. We can go directly into uh, the, the access with God, and we can have a conversation with the Father. We can go directly into his presence and spend time uh, with the Father. And so now we're going to pick up here these last four verses of this passage and see the purpose of everything that Paul lays out for us in chapter number two. What is the purpose for the gospel? What is the purpose of, of the reconciliation? What is the purpose of the peace? What is the purpose of the access to the Father? What is the driving purpose behind all of that? So let's take a look here. Ephesians chapter number two. And uh, we're going to begin reading here in verse number 19. He says here, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are now fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. 
And so the purpose here of all of this is that we are the church, and we'll see how the church plays a, a, an important role in our, uh, our transformation from, from, from being dead to now that we've been resurrected to life in Christ. And we see some very important words here in this text. Um, these are words that used to describe who we are. And it's because of the gospel that Christ has resurrected us to a new life. We now have a new identity. We're no longer described as we once were, as being dead, as being uh, a person that walked according to the, the flesh and a person that walked in the vanity of our mind, a person that walked according to the course of this world. We're, we're followers and participants of Satan. Um, we have a new identity in Christ. And what is that? Look what he says here. He says, we are now fellow citizens. We are fellow citizens. You see, rather than being aliens and non-citizens, as he talked about in chapter 2 there earlier, we are now fellow citizens. Now, why does Paul use this language of being citizens? You see, being a citizen back in Paul's day was a very big deal. I mean, a very big deal. You know, right now here in America, we have people that live in America that are not citizens of America. What do we call those people? Aliens, right? Not that they came down in a spaceship and no, but that they do not have a U.S. citizenship. They're foreigners, they're aliens. Well, Paul here talks about being fellow citizens with the saints. You see, citizenship wasn't granted to people back in the day where Paul lived. They weren't, it wasn't granted to people who were residents. Even the people that were born in Rome did not have citizenship. Citizenship was only granted to a certain people, prominent people. Sometimes you had to be born in a wealthy class. You had to be noble. You had to be from a, from a background of an old established family to have citizenship. And so to have Roman citizenship, it gave a person special rights and privileges. For example, you had the right to vote. You had the right to hold office. You had the right to make contracts. You had the right to own property. You had the right to have a lawful marriage. You had the right to have children of any such marriage become citizens uh, automatically. You had right to have the legal rights of the family. We're going to love this one. You had the right not to pay some taxes. I mean, this was a privilege that if you were had Roman citizenship, you could say, eh, you know what? I'm going to vote no on that one. I'm not paying the taxes for that. You had right uh, to sue in court and to be sued. You had the right to defend yourself in court. You had the right to have a legal trial with a judge, the right to appeal a decision. No Roman citizen could be tortured, whipped, or receive the death penalty unless it was because of treason. And so Paul uses this word, he says, we are now, our identity now in Christ is that we are citizens with the saints. 
So when Paul uses this word, he's using it in connection with the blessings and the privileges that only come from knowing God and being part of his family. And so a person that is born into the family of God, you become a citizen of heaven. You become a citizen of the family of God. You get to enjoy the rights and the privileges of being part of God's family. So what are those blessings and privileges? Well, we read about them all through chapter 1 and chapter number 2. All the blessings that we have in Christ, that is because of all of our citizenship that we have with the Father. And look what he says here, literally. He just says, he doesn't just say citizens, but look what he says, citizens with the saints. Literally, that word there, saint, is a word used to describe God's holy people. And so who are the holy people? Well, in the context here, he's talking about Jew and Gentile. And so he's talking about that we have a citizenship with the holy people, with the Jews, the people that were chosen by God. We have a citizenship with them. And so this, the, the Jews there, they, they were the ones that had the special privilege of being dedicated and consecrated to God for service. And Paul is saying, we have that same citizenship now. Because we are Gentile believers, we have that same citizenship. Now you say, but why does this matter? I mean, what? Okay, so I'm a citizen. What? So what? Okay, why, what, why would that matter to me? It's not what, but who. You see, who I am in Christ, I'm a fellow citizen. I'm blessed by God. I'm used for his service. I've been set apart and dedicated for his pleasure. It's more than just my sins are forgiven. You see, I'm part of his family. We are members. Look what he says. We are members of the household of God. What is the difference between a club and a family? How many of you guys remember back in the day, uh, people that used to wear the jackets that had the members-only jacket? Remember that? You're like, what is a members-only jacket? Um, how many of you are members of Costco or Sam's Club? Okay. You can't buy anything. You can't uh, uh, purchase anything there without that club membership. And being part of that membership gives you special privileges. But when I go into Costco, do they treat me like family or do they treat me like I'm a consumer? Give me your money. I just can't wait to the day till my daughter says, Dad, can I have some money? That's probably when I'll no longer be a family member, but then I will be treated like a consumer. But God's word tells us here that we are members of the household of God. Now this is important because at this point Paul begins this analogy now of a building which culminates in being the grandest house of all which is a temple as we continue reading on through this passage. And the analogy starts with our privileges and it starts with what we have as being fellow citizens with the saints and now being members of the household of God. 
The word household simply means persons who are related by kinship or circumstances and form a closely knit group, members of a household. Paul uses this word also in Galatians 6.10 when he says that we are of the household of faith. But again, why does this matter? You see, we are not just house guests or house servants. Dear friends, we have been adopted into the very family of God. And we are now family members. Did you ever go over to somebody's house and outstay your welcome? Did you ever have somebody come over to your house and they outstayed their welcome? You're like, well, you know, boy, getting kind of late. And they still continue, well, you know, blah, blah. The Bible tells us that we are of the household members of the family. Wow, that's amazing. You see, God does not treat us as if we are just some kind of of a thing that once he kind of gets tired of us, he just says, well, you know what? I'm tired of dealing with you. I'm tired of you uh, being part of this, and I don't want you in my family anymore. He welcomes us. He allows us to stay. He allows us to talk. And he takes great pleasure in us. You know, it's always said, you may be able to pick your friends. You can pick your nose. But you can't pick your friend's nose. (laughs) The church is a family. Not what, but who. You see, you can't pick your family. You are just assigned them. It's not like when Evelyn was born, I looked through a catalog and said, well, boy, hmm, I think this this would be good. Well, yeah, this would be good. God gave us the family that we have. We were just born into that family. And so you are assigned them, and they are assigned you. The church is not an exclusive club of those who are raised like you are, or have a certain level of education, or live in the right neighborhood, or come from a particular race or social class. Your brothers and sisters, some of them, have come from very hard backgrounds, All of us here gathered together, if you know Christ as your Savior, you've been translated from darkness to light, you've been resurrected to new life in Christ, you are family now. We are family. And some of us have some very different backgrounds, upbringings, things that have happened good, things that have have happened that are bad. And you know the one thing that unites us together? Christ. Some have been wounded. Some of them are hurting. Some are healing. Some are very powerful in the spirit. You don't choose them. But you must, you must love them. Why? Because they have one thing in common. 
that we all trust in Jesus Christ. And we've been chosen, we've been elected by the Father to be his family. You see, the family is not some comfy, some type of clubby concept. It's not us four and no more. You see, it's the Father's family, and he teaches love as the main command in that family. He tells us that we are to love God and love others as ourselves. And so when this family model that we have here, in a way because we are knit together and in a way because we are family, and as we learn to love each other, in a way we reflect the Father's love that he has for the world in our community. And so it's so important to understand it's not what, but who. The church is not a place. This is not the church. We are the church. We are citizens and we're members of the household of faith. I want to show you a second thing about this. There's materials that are used to build this family with any building, it requires materials. I heard a story about two hillbilly brothers that were going to go and build a house. And so they set off and they went to Menards. And as they got there to Menards, one of them says, well, I'll tell you what, I'll stay in the truck and you go inside and go and get the materials. He says, okay, I'll do that. So he goes in there and he meets a, a man in the building supply, uh, supply place. And he says, uh, yes, so we're going to build a house and we need some materials. Guy says, okay, uh, what do you need? And the brother says, uh, well, I'll tell you what, I'm going to need 50 four-by-twos. The man looks at him and says, hmm, are you sure you need four-by-twos? Don't you mean two-by-fours? Let me go check. So he runs over to the car and he asks his, his brother, he says, uh, is it four-by-twos or two-by-fours? Two-by-fours, okay. So he goes back in, he says, oh, you're right, you're right, it's two-by-fours. The man says, okay, how long do you need them for? Hmm, boy, let me go ask my brother again. So he goes out and he comes back and he tells the lumber guy, well, mister, we are going to build a house, so we will be needing them for a very long time. <laughs> and how true that is that the building of God, the household of God, the family of God, the church, it's for a very long time. It's eternal. You see, the household of God, the church, has materials as well. And all the materials are necessary. If we skip one of these materials, the house is not going to be built well. It's going to crumble and it's going to fall. It's, going to, it's, it's just not going to work out well. And so we want to have a very solid household and here are the materials that the household of God is built upon. Look what he says here. He lists these four materials. There's the foundation. There's the cornerstone. There's the whole structure of it. And then he says that they're joined together. Look what he says here about this foundation. It says that they are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. 
So the church, the household of God, is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. What does this mean? When we think of the prophets, immediately we should think about the Old Testament. When we think of the uh, apostles, we should think of the New Testament. And the teachings of the Old Testament prophets and the teachings of the New Testament apostles here, even though they are no longer alive, we have recorded for us their teachings in the word of God. So what is God trying to teach us here? He's saying that his household is built, it's laid on the foundation of the word of God. I cannot stress this enough. Any time that we deviate from the word of God, the household is not safe and it's not secure. Because without a strong foundation, things are going to fall apart. They're going to crumble. They're not going to work like they should. And so this is why we should value scripture so highly Without God's word as our foundation, we are on very shaky ground. Because without a foundation, your house is sunk. There's nothing you can do about it. It must be solid. It must be secure. It must be sound. And only God's word provides that solid foundation that is necessary to sustain But then look what he says here also. He says that you have the foundation and then Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And so Jesus is part of that foundation too. He is the one who uh, called the apostles. He taught them. He commissioned them to pass on his message to us. And here we find that he is also the redeemer who brought us salvation in Ephesians chapter number 2. And so the cornerstone is the principal thing. It's the, it's the one main principal stone that is placed in the foundation to which everything else is to be aligned with. And the cornerstone was usually one of the largest, the most solid, the most carefully constructed of any of the building. The cornerstone was used as a point of reference to which everything else aligned with. In the book of Isaiah, in several places, Jesus is referred to to us as the cornerstone. In Isaiah 28, verses 16 through 17, it says, So this is what the sovereign Lord says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who trusts will never be dismayed. I will make justice the meaning line and righteousness the plumb line. In Zechariah 10:4, it says, From Judah will come the cornerstone, from him the tent peg, from him the battle bow, from him every ruler. In Acts 4.11, it says, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. In 1 Peter 2.7, it says, So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Can I tell you something? I believe that there's a lot of people that have many foundations in their life 
but not Jesus Christ as their foundation. It's so important that we build our lives on Jesus Christ. Without that foundation, you can do anything you want to, but your stone is not secure, your stone is not solid, and when the, when the, when the troubles of life come into you, your house is going to fall. And so it's so important to build your life. It's so important that the church is built upon the foundation of Jesus Christ. But then look what he says here. He says this whole structure being joined together. We are this structure. We are the church, the building of God. And Paul uses this imagery here with these words joined together. In Ephesians 4.16, we read that the church is a body that is joined together. Before there were bolts and nuts and screws and uh, gorilla glue and all that kind of stuff, um, carpenters would, would, would fashion out notches and joints and, and they would create holes with pegs and, and things to join things together. Um, especially in this area here, you may see uh, some Amish carpentry of how they put things together, joining them together. And Paul says here that this whole structure is that we are joined together. And the Lord's point in all this is that every single person has a purpose in the household of God. Some of us are round holes. Other, other of us are square pegs. But it's the Lord who joins them together. We each have a slot, a notch, a unique way of coming together. We all can't be the same. And so we, however, can be joined together. Back in uh, Urbana, where we used to live there in Ohio, in the neighborhood, we used to take a walk, and there was this house, and it was, it seemed like it started out kind of like as this like small cottage. And from the street view, looking at it, you could see uh, the way that the, the house was constructed. And then as you turn the corner, however, it's like they kept adding on and adding on and adding on. And so we, uh, Jamie and I used to do this thing. Uh, you know that, uh, I, I think it's called the Olympic Fanfare Song, John Williams. That's what we would think of when we'd see that house. It's, you know, you know. And I think about the church, okay? Um, you know, since we are the household of God, God is the one that is joining us together. He's bringing us together. And he's the one that is adding to the family. And as he adds to the family, there's additions into that family. And as we're joined together, it may be a da, 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 da. But he's always bringing it together. And so he uses these materials. 
I want to show you the last thing here about the fact that we are the church. Look what he says here. Paul is now going to reveal to us this purpose of the church. Why is it joined together? Why does all this happen? Okay. The reason why all the building takes place, why we're part of the household of God and built together. Here it is. You ready? Look at verse number 22. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the purpose of the church. If you ask people sometimes, you say, what is the purpose of the church? You get a lot of ideas, a lot of things that people say, the purpose of the church, why we have a church, all this kind of stuff. That's the purpose of the church, to being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You see, it's not for you. It's not for me. It's for him. Paul uses these words here, built together, literally to build up or construct of various parts, to build it. You see, you and I are not built for individual devotion and churchless lives as lone ranger Christians. We are to be built together with others. You see, but you might say, but Lord, there's some of those people in the church that are hard people. Lord, leave me alone. I don't want to be part of this building or this thing you call the church. Loving them is way too difficult for me. Can I tell you, fellow fellow family members, being part of a church congregation is not an option for us. It is God's plan for us. God's word tells us that we are living stones in 1 Peter chapter number 2, verse number 5. We are literally living two-by-fours. We're joined to others to create something beyond ourselves, something not for our benefit, and it's for God's benefit, not ours. And what is that benefit for? Look at verse 21. God desires us to be a holy temple, his holy temple for his purposes. Why? The answer to this should bring us to a a sense of reverence and awe of who God is. This verse tells us that God wants you and me to be a part of a temple in which God himself desires to dwell in. God does not live in this building. It's not like I come in here on Monday, Monday morning and I turn on the lights and be like, oh, hey God, how you doing? You, you must have been up late last night. When we gather together, As a family, God desires to dwell among us, a holy temple. You know, we read about the great power and the glory when God dwelt in the tabernacle in the wilderness. We read about that great power and the glory as God dwelt in Solomon's temple. But see, we're not outside the temple, wondering what it's like to know what what it is to to experience God and to experience his his grace and and his, his holiness. You see, we are part of the temple itself is what the scripture's teaching us. And we actually form a temple that God dwells in. 
You see, this body of believers, known here as Pleasant Ridge Christian Fellowship, is a holy temple. We are the building of God. Jesus told us in Matthew 18, 20, that wherever two or three are gathered in his name, he's in the midst. And so when we leave here, it's not a church as an event. When we leave here, we are literally taking the church with us. We are taking the building and the temple of God in our homes, on our jobs, in the community. We are taking the holy temple of God with us. And that's amazing. Because the power is not just in here. The power is wherever we go and we, we preach the name of Christ and we uplift Christ, we become his holy temple. So do you desire to be a part of the household of God? Household, family member? Or do you still want to be kind of like a uh, Costco member? God desires for us to be a family together.